Wow. It's very enthusiastic. Yeah, yeah. All right. I guess we got a new announcement, lady. Where did we find her? Yikes. Yikes. Okay. Um, let's see. What announcements do I want to add surreptitiously? Uh, I don't think anything, actually. Oh, no, I do think something. Um, I had the privilege of uh, interacting with a guy that used to be in our focus ministry way back when, about a decade ago, and he's involved in something else. I just want to kind of put this out here as possibly an opportunity uh, for some of you, and uh, he works for an organization that's either called Faith in Action or Faith in Texas. I'm pretty sure it's Faith in Texas. And their goal is to organize community members uh, in various churches and organizations uh, to be politically active. Uh, specific issues that they work with right now are uh, payday loan uh, lending companies. They, they basically got the city council in Garland to kick out all payday loan uh, companies. And they do medical bills, um, making sure that people have the ability to negotiate medical bills. They work primarily in Dallas, Garland, and Arlington, um, but we're looking for opportunities for them to come up here and do some training and, and be uh, uh, kind of get some people involved in that. So if that's something that you'd be interested in being a part of um, or on a team to do, let me know and we can talk about it. We've even thought about possibly doing a, uh, a missions uh, service kind of trip like we used to do in December in the summer. Uh, doing uh, door knocking and canvassing and helping uh, organize uh, issues. And it's a, a bipartisan uh, organization that really is trying to get people to, kind of, to um, you know, uh, organize a block of people around certain values. And that's not just Christian, Judeo-Christian values, so to speak. I mean, they've got a lot of Jewish organizations apart. They even has an Islamic group. Uh, the goal really is to pull people together to, uh, you know, to figure out how to vote. And, uh, and vote collectively, and it's really cool too because they have a, a, a neat, um, I guess, theology of voting kind of class they teach, and it's really helpful for me to look through that. I've never been very politically active, and I've always felt a little bit guilty for that, but not known why and not done anything about it. Um, and this was the first time I actually felt very interested in any of it, talking to these folks. So anyway, be looking for that. That's a kind of a cool opportunity. Uh, I know certainly for those of you who uh, know Willie, uh, Willie is running uh, for office, and if you're interested in talking to him about that or being a part of that, um, that's great. Uh, we don't obviously as a church advocate or um, tell you specific candidates that you ought to vote for, but certainly if you're interested in the things that he's doing, you can be a part of that. There's an event this Wednesday uh, that's on uh, infant mortality and maternal um, uh, issues uh, so if you're interested in being a part of that, talk to me, and I'll give you some, some information about that. This afternoon, that Faith in Texas organization is bringing the two D Dallas district attorney candidates in for a presentation tonight from 5 to 7, where immigrants talk about their path uh, to citizenship and basically ask these uh, candidates what they're going to do about immigration. So also, if you're interested in that, uh, let me know, and I'll tell you where that's at. All right. So kind of cool stuff. Figured that it might be good to... Uh, um, let you guys know about that before some of those things are coming. This is election year, and so everyone's kind of interested in, in all that good stuff. Okay, we're continuing on. Here we go uh, with our series. We're going to take a couple-week break. The next week, we're going to do a worship service over Isaiah 1, 
And uh, the week after that, I don't really know what we're doing. We might cancel, we might not. We probably won't because it's the 11th and it's spring break, so we'll probably just do something totally different and cool uh, and adult since all of you college students are, are going to be gone. Uh, we do adult things when you're gone, just kidding. And um, so, yeah, so we'll take a couple of week break and then we'll be back, uh, back on it on uh, March 18th. We have one more week of class. The class this weekend might be the most applicable considering it... Uh, it talks about historical methods that are used today uh, in the, you know, sort of as a result of the Enlightenment and modern periods. And so if you're interested in coming to our last class, you certainly can. Uh, and that'll be next week, March 4th. And then on April 1st, we'll start a whole new four-week class on devotional reading. All right? And so we've done a class on exegesis and, uh, and study, and now we're going to do one on, uh, on devotional reading. And that'll be a four-week class starting April 1st. Sound good? Is that what, huh, who? It's not an April Fool's joke. It's really not. And devotional reading isn't either. (laughs) Got him. All right. So, uh, today the topic is the early church fathers' allegory in the Bible. Do I have to be spiritual to read well? I don't intend on talking too much about this because I don't think we have a lot of people in our midst who come from allegorical backgrounds, and so I'm not uh, so sure I need to, uh, to talk about this uh, at length. And so I'm just going to kind of give you a few ideas and challenges, and, uh, and then we'll move on. Then the next four weeks, we're really going to kind of dig into uh, what a number of scholars consider sort of the four major literary interpretation uh, schools of thought, Okay. This first one being the allegorical school, which tends to be the oldest. The second one, uh, and remember I gave you an analogy, Bruce Waltke talked about uh, those who come from the allegorical school uh, as uh, more or less being um, sort of, um, actually I kind of completely forgot what it was, actually. I don't remember what that one was. Do you guys remember that? I said the above scripture, below scripture, before, before scripture, that's the one. I'm glad I just said it. Um, so, allegorical reading as before Scripture, that they're sort of predisposed culture or ideas about what the Scripture should say uh, comes before how they actually read the Scripture, okay? Walter Lippmann, a famous journalist in the 60s, once said, we do not first see, then define, we define first, then see. That's an excellent quote for this before the Scripture type reading, allegorical. Uh-huh. Like the entire thing? Oh, uh, we... for. We do not first see, then define. We define first, then see. The idea that in our scripture reading, we're working off of assumptions that we already have either from our culture or our rule of faith, as the Catholic Church in the medieval day uh, talked about it, um, and then we're reading uh, with those sort of rose-colored glasses on. The second uh, of those typologies would be considered the Chicago School constituency or just fundamentalism in general, Okay. And the idea that Bruce Waltke said that I thought was really helpful is those folks stand on the text, forcing it in, you know, to say exactly uh, what they want it to say. They dominate you know, that, that text. The third school would be the historical critical, the sort of traditional liberal approach that tends to only look at um, things that you can scientifically observe, and that school that became very popular in the Enlightenment age. And, uh, and those uh, folks tend to, to stand uh, above the text. Okay, is what Walkie talked about, meaning that they're over it. They're sort of, you know, they have power over it to, you know, make it, to, again, say what they want. That sort of sounds like standing on the text, but 
you know, whatever. If those help you, great. If they don't, whatever. And, uh, and postmodern uh, uh, readers, which would be most of you, um, you know, would be the fourth school of thought, and those uh, stand with the text. Sort of their experience along with the text is, uh, is sort of an equal playing field. And Bruce Walke just talks about, and Bruce Walke's a famous biblical scholar, I had the privilege of hearing talk at Regent a couple years ago, just says, you know what, if there's any place I want to stand in regard to the text of Scripture, it's under it. I want to be subject to it, okay? I don't want to be above or on top or before or with, or with it. I want to be under it so that it informs what I think and, uh, and how I look at the world. And I think that's a really great way of looking at it. So these next few weeks, we're really going to be talking about those four types of reading and we're going to throw in there science in the Bible, because why not, right? Uh, fits in there anyway. And then we'll do some specific issues at the end, like can't the scripture say anything you want to say, or isn't it antiquated and not really applicable to today, and things like that. And so that, that'll sort of wrap us up. Um, hopefully, again, you're continuing reading the passages, thinking through them, using some of the tools that, uh, that we've given you uh, to be able to do this. Otherwise, you're listening to uh, me drone on and on about it will be ineffective. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, I know I messed up. See, this is what happens when you read chapters and you rely on, uh, you know, chapters, okay? We talked about the Geneva Bible this morning, the first Bible of its kind uh, to do chapters and verses, which were really helpful for studying, but not so helpful for reading in context. So I know I told you 1 Corinthians 2, 1, and I'm so sorry I lied to you. We're really gonna start in 1, 18. And if you read 2, 1, uh, or the entire chapter of two and were confused, it's probably because I forgot to tell you to read 118 before it, because that just really helps things out. So I'm sorry, I'm just gonna assume everyone's behind this morning, no big deal, we'll, we'll get up to speed, okay? So 1 Corinthians uh, 1.18. Now, I will say that there's one thing that's always helped me read Corinthians, and I say always, you know, ever since I started reading when I was two, um, just kidding, like recently helped me read Corinthians, and that is knowing that Corinth is a lot like the U.S., okay? And what I mean by that is Corinth is a whole lot of folks who didn't grow up rich and aren't that poor. They've earned their manumission, which meant their uh, freedom from slavery, and they are self-made folks. They are a land of self-made folks, the Corinthian church. Now, there's definitely some poor among them, but the poor are servants of servants. It's one of the main issues that brings up this, this problem with the Corinthian church between those who are servants and poor and those who aren't is these uh, servants, you would think, well, you know, some of them probably treated their servants better maybe than they were treated, but probably others of them, now that they're in the right spot and, and at the top of the game, they probably treated their servants exactly like they were treated if it was negative and, you know, had these really strict ways of looking at the system. But most, uh, most Corinthians were self-made folks. It was a very rich town. It was a port city. Uh, it had a lot of athletes and entertainment. These were new generation money, money people. So they wanted to spend their money. They wanted to show their money off. Uh, and I think that's kind of helpful uh, for understanding a lot of the issues in Corinth um, at that time. Okay, so let's do this. One eighteen. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So a lot of juxtapositions, kind of compare and contrast here. Uh, and in fact, it might be even helpful. Sometimes when you get confusing passages like that, it could even be helpful to draw diagrams. That sounds weird, but like, not like, you know, preaching diagram to save someone's soul, but 
a sort of a diagram for you, you to understand what are the comparisons, what are the contrasts, what are the different connections as to what is being said. That can be very helpful in passages like this that use a lot of repetition and a lot of keywords. Okay, so message across is foolish to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, and he quotes Isaiah no fewer than four times here, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where, you gonna be okay? Or? <laughs> I'm just messing with you. <laughs> Only because it was you. Um, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Now you're going to get a lot of these sort of untrue, hyperbolic statements, right? I mean, he's certainly not saying God has weakness or God has foolishness. Uh, any more than he's talking about us having eternal spirits when he talks in a moment about spirits. Um, but you're going to get some of these statements that aren't meant to be taken uh, in, in, uh, in a way that's not in regard to their type of language, right? One of the important things about understanding Scripture is we have to be typological learners, meaning that we have to understand the types of literary uh, things that are being used so as to respond to those literary forms, right? If you went to a horror movie and you expected at the end to, you know, really feel much better about your life, you messed up in uh, typology. You went to the wrong kind of movie, okay? Now, you might feel relieved that you're not going to die uh, immediately, but it's just not the, the right type. So when we're reading scripture, we can't possibly expect to like read through a lamentation and then be like, yeah, the world is good. Yeah, great. Or read through one of the Psalms where, you know, David is uh, asking for kids to be uh, dashed against rocks and think, oh man, this is just easy to understand. I really got a lot out of that one, that passage. That was really helpful to me today. Um, so types, 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 types. That's important. Typological. Just because we're reading literal doesn't mean that we're not reading typological because literally the author is wanting you to respond to the type you're reading. doesn't want you to read it in a wooden way. He wants you to respond to the type that he's used in, uh, in his thinking here. So, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble, noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. 
For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, of course, Paul's saying something very grand here, considering how educated he was. Some people uh, argue that um, this passage kind of happened right after the Athens passage where he's traveling, because it is true that Corinth happened after Athens. And remember in Athens, he goes into a, sort of a philosopher's court and tries to reason with them based on their own, you know, use of poet, poetry and their own gods. And he felt really bad because he didn't get any converts. And so now he's coming to them and not doing that same thing. I don't think there's a connection here. Paul certainly was educated. And it was time for him to show his education and be to the Greeks like the, what the Greeks needed uh, him to be. He was willing to do that. This isn't Paul saying, um, you know, anti-intellectual, anti-knowledge. He's saying he came to Corinth where everyone was impressed with knowledge and wisdom and chose to go a different route so as not to cause them to stumble. Okay? Particularly because they're already trying to side with certain ones of these wise teachers over others. So he's doing what's best uh, what's, uh, in their best interest. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. We speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men know the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? Uh, does, is he saying that all of us are imbued with some spirit? I don't know. He also says the world has a spirit. So I'm not really for sure what to take that other than as uh, to basically just say the sort of core of who a person is. For among men uh, knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Notice the capitals, non-capitals, all that stuff that they got added in later that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That's pretty boring, right? You're like, you read that and you're just like, oh man, that is, that's hard. What is this? This is, is it boring to you? Do you like it? What, what's your response? You're not, you're not ready to admit that it's boring to you? You're not ready to admit that you just read that whole thing and you can't remember any of what it says other than God's foolish and more than man's wisdom. This passage is pretty difficult because it says a whole lot of things. And one of the things that seems to suggest that there are all these mysteries and that if we don't read the scripture allegorically, we, po we can't possibly, uh, you know, understand the mysteries of God. And in fact, it has been used by some of the early church fathers to talk about how spiritual people understand mysteries that the world doesn't understand. The irony of that, of course, is that that's the opposite of what Paul is actually saying here. 
which I don't know. I mean, maybe sometimes it's good to start with the opposite and then work from there, because then at least you know which direction you got to go. It's like the back the exact opposite direction. But I have a couple points here I want to make, and I'm going to try to stay really, really close to the text here. Number one, Jews demand signs. We demand proof. But God gives us his weakness. So the Jews demand signs. We, us, demand proof. But God gives us his weakness. You might be able to uh, put, do we demand power or we demand strength uh, or success? There's probably some other words you could put in there uh, to maybe be uh, more representative of how you feel. But God gives us his weakness. Guys, the mystery of God is not earned or learned. All right? It's very clear from this passage, it's a free gift given to us so as not to boast. So how a lot of the early uh, church fathers who got into this game of I'm more spiritual than you, I know more than you do, I've unlocked the secrets of and mysteries of God that you haven't, does not make much sense to me other than recognizing that just because we think we ought to read in one way doesn't mean we're going to practice any of those things. And in fact, if you read through some of the early church fathers in the first three or four centuries after Christ, a lot of them didn't believe this is how you ought to interpret, and yet they didn't really follow their own advice, just like we often don't follow our own advice. Do as I say, not as I do. We like that one a whole lot, because that frees us up from actually having to do anything. We can just say for other people to go do those things, okay? But this is a, 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 a mystery of God. It's something given to us. God gives us these truths about the world absolutely for free. We do not earn them for being spiritual. We do not learn them from being a studious person. The only demand on us is for continual relationship. Just like I give gifts to my friends and don't just give random anonymous gifts consistently to people I don't know because the significance is going to be largely lost there, God gives us the gift of wisdom to show us he is who he is and to build relationship with us. And wisdom is hard to define, but in my mind, wisdom is knowing what to do uh, in the situations that there is no clear path and being able to do not just a good thing, but the best thing. The best thing. Because plenty of us can get away with doing something good, especially according to standards around us uh, that say, hey, this is kind of how you ought to go. But wisdom is truly doing the best thing in situations that have absolutely no clear path. And God gives us this wisdom. James goes so far as to say, if you want it, just ask for it. It's not learned. You're not going to earn it by being spiritual or being studious or being incredibly smart or by being mature in your faith. This is something God gives us. And it doesn't happen by uh, osmosis. You're not going to just gradually pick it up from around you as time goes on. This is a very active process in relationship with God. The heart of allegorical reading is not being able to handle the weakness of God in Scripture. Allegorical readers can't handle God being portrayed as weak. Even this statement right here is an incredibly hard stumbling block for people who want to read allegorically. 
As we talked about in our class, there was a sort of a Greek saying uh, that came from some folks that, uh, that came slightly before Plato, that you ought to read the uh, you know, Greek mythology in a way worthy of God in a way that is worthy of God. And some of that makes some sense. We say, okay, you know, we ought not read things that make God look worse than, okay? This is part of what led to the heresy of Marcion thinking that the God of the Old Testament was this bad dude, and then, you know, emanations after that, we had this new guy that was good. But what they lost in that was a sense to be able to read that God is often presented as weak in the scripture for our own good. That Christ himself The power of the cross is God's weakness on our behalf, which is incredibly amazing, actually, when you think about it, because nowhere else in any of, you know, sort of literature about God in any of the surrounding cultures or even still today, do you ever want to present a God as weak? This is very offensive, okay? And why is that? I mean, if you really think, what's the heart, what's the core of not being able to handle God's weakness in Scripture? Well, in my mind, at least, and this could be just totally me, it's we want a God that's voices booming from Mount Sinai who we're terrified of. We don't want a friend. We're much more comfortable with a God that's far off, scary, who we have to just basically capitulate to at all times. But the idea of a weak friend in God is scary to us. It's just scary. It's radical. It, it's just radical. It's just easier to work with a God that's kind of out there and authoritative. And this is part of why allegorical reading became so popular in the medieval time period where people were subjected to the rule of the church. They wanted authority over them. It was just easier to live with authority over them to have to be a friend of God's. Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves, you're now my friends. But when we want, I think at the the best some days, uh, we want someone to kind of take authority over us. But God presents himself in his weakness as our friend. And that's really, really powerful. The second point here, Greeks look for wisdom. We look for what sounds smart. But God gives us a ghost living inside of us. I don't know how uh, to present that more foolish than that right there. We got a ghost living inside of us. (laughs) Okay? So Greeks look for wisdom. We look for what sounds smart or looks smart, but God gives us a ghost living inside of us. Guys, human wisdom sees God's wisdom as foolish and vice versa. Now this is challenging because just because something is seen as foolish doesn't mean It's God's wisdom. Let's not get that uh, mixed up here because that was a real problem and it has been a problem with fundamentalism, people being very okay with having very foolish ideas that they ought not have. That's just straight foolish to everyone, okay? Not uh, including God. God is looking at your ideas foolish, okay? So foolishness itself isn't a good litmus test for whether or not our beliefs are from God or not. The point here is just that human wisdom at its core, at its essence, sees godly wisdom as foolish. Because human wisdom is ultimately about what's in it for humans. Now, there's certainly human wisdom that takes God's wisdom and and incorporates it, puts into practice, and so there's varying levels of foolishness. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to paint all non- 
biblical wisdom, whatever that means, uh, as foolish. But human wisdom sees God's wisdom as ultimately foolish, and we could go into this a whole lot. But I'm not going to, because that would be a whole other sermon. I will sort of leave you with this. The reason it's foolish is for two reasons in my estimation. Number one, it either goes against something that's natural to our instincts, which of course God himself gave us. Survival, you know, certainly trying to do stuff for other people, being altruistic doesn't really make sense when I'm kind of in it for myself. Or it goes against some cultural uh, idea of good that I've kind of bought into. It just seems foolish because of the culture that I'm in. And again, I'm not going to go too much into that because I think that's where things get really confusing. Uh, so there you go. That's all you get. So the mystery of God isn't a mystery, guys, because it's hard to understand. It's a mystery because we won't accept it. That's the idea here in this passage. The mysteries of God don't need to be plumbed uh, you know, really deeply by learned or spiritually you know, mature people. They're not understood and they seem foolish to us because we simply do not accept them. We're unwilling to accept them. Those directives given us by God, a lot of which probably because we can't handle God as a friend in his weakness, we don't trust him, whatever the reason might be. We don't accept it. We like things that sound smart because ideas give us a sense of false identity. Sort of like sex early on in a relationship gives us a sense of false intimacy that we haven't earned, that isn't real, that is a shaky foundation at best. Ideas give us a false identity that we can buy into that isn't earned, it isn't practiced, but it makes us feel like we're something significant because we have the idea. That's not that funny. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So, the mystery of God isn't a mystery uh, because it's hard to understand, guys. It's a mystery because we won't accept it. And I think if there's one thing I want to leave you with from this uh, is allegorical reading allows us to play around with ideas but not have to do anything as a result of them. And that's, that's one of the real problems with allegorical reading. It's what allowed the church to ultimately come up with all kinds of crazy things like papal indulgences and things like that without really grounding them in any kind of scripture. They could just pretty much do what they wanted. They had free reign. So if the heart of allegorical reading is not being able to handle the weakness of God in scripture, the mind of allegorical reading is not being able to handle the foolishness of God in scripture. We just can't handle the foolishness of God in scripture. The foolish things it seems like he's wanting us to do. Okay? So instead, we come up with ideas that release us from having to do those things. From having to obey and trust and accept the things. And this is why this entire sermon series is called Building Belief in the Right Reading of Scripture. If as you're reading... 
you are consuming information or even just consuming instruction on how to live, but not actually questioning, have I believed and accepted this? Then you're not ultimately going to move much further in your faith. Because either you're going to have instructions on what to do that you can't justify, you can't explain, and don't come across as good news to anybody who hears it, okay? Or you're going to have a whole lot of information, information that doesn't really apply to anything that you're doing now. (laughs) You can sure talk to other people who are interested in, you know, arcane facts about the Bible, but you don't got anything. If you aren't questioning when you read, do I believe this and do I accept it? Because we need to be more honest in our reading of Scripture. And one of the first things we can do as we're reading is simply say, God, I don't think I believe this. And I certainly am not ready to accept it yet. This seems still like foolishness to me. And it's super, super important here that we recognize that rather than just accept the idea of it. Because one of the things that I most kind of uh, cringe at is when Christians try to explain their beliefs and have incredibly poor thinking about why they believe what they believe. And worse than their poor thinking is their inability to connect it back to God's character. And if we're ultimately in wisdom learning how to trust and know God as our friend in his weakness, because being our friend is a weakness then we ought to be able to communicate really well what it is that he is asking us to do. That may be foolish in accordance with his character, but at least we understand it. And we ought to at least be presenting those ideas clearly so that people are rejecting the foolishness of the idea and not the foolishness of our thinking in that idea, which is a huge difference in my mind. But for most of us, they're simply rejecting the foolishness by which Uh, we talk about the things that uh, that we believe because they are actually just foolish. They're not actually uh, rejecting the foolishness uh, of God himself. So, for your homework for next week, it's going to be Isaiah 1. And uh, you're going to read this in a little bit of a different way. Really would like for you to read it devotionally. Uh, If you need to study through it some, that's great. But we're going to have an entire worship service that's just centered around Uh, the words of Isaiah here. There is, um, I think, and I'm not completely for sure about this, but I'm almost 79% sure. The the New Testament authors quote Isaiah more than anything else. Isaiah is an incredibly important passage to the New Testament authors. Look that up. 79%, that's close, but I don't know. Leaves room for, you know, me going back on it. Um, and so we really want to start off with this kind of famous passage in Isaiah 1 to really talk about how the, the scripture uh, causes us to worship. And uh, so if you'll read that, think through that, particularly read it devotionally, uh, and come up with some thoughts that you could share uh, with uh, uh, the group, that would be pretty amazing uh, so that we can, uh, we can really worship God together. All right, uh, we're going to take communion and... Uh, yeah, communion, uh, the way we do it here, for those of you who don't know, I feel like we say this a lot, but, um, and most people know it, but it's good to just talk about why we do new things, particularly if they're new traditions. We celebrate, we're loud, um, but we don't celebrate the fact that we all know each other and like each other, that's cool. <laughs> we celebrate the fact that, uh, that Jesus is indeed our friend and uh, has put himself so close to us in a way as to uh, you know, breathe life into us. 
uh, that no other God has ever been recorded doing, okay? That our true God loves us and knows us in our humanity and, uh, and very deeply. And through that, we can treat each other right knowing that fact. Knowing that Jesus, uh, in what he did, uh, humbled himself to do what's best for us in his own weakness. That's pretty cool stuff. So you'll take the bread in the back, dip it into the juice, and then uh, we'll try to kind of make our way uh, back here, which is like impossible with this group, but um, just try, try your best. If you need to pull people, pull them, okay? Jesus, thank you so much uh, for what you did for us on the cross, that you would be weak, be nothing for our sake. Um, There's nothing we can really say uh, to understand that. Most of us understand the idea, uh, but have never really been in that kind of situation. So we can only at our best just remember what you've done and keep it as a a benchmark for how we ought to live. Lord, I pray that you uh, would help us accept the truths that you present to us in Scripture, that we wouldn't sidestep or circumvent them by um, logging ideas in our head, but that we would question whether we believe those things that we read, believe you and uh, trust that, uh, that the foolishness of your word uh, is wisdom in our lives. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for continuing to work in us and in our church. Amen. All right, guys, you can take the... Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.